The Liberals Gun Corner, a proud progeny of the Gun Rights Radio Network, hosted by Cowboy T, San Francisco liberal with a gun. This podcast is always available at www.liberalsguncorner.com, and you can email us at cowboyt at liberalsguncorner.com. Cowboy T here. Welcome to episode 50. Yep, this is our 50th episode. I just got back from a week-long trip to Bangkok, Thailand. Yeah, plane touched down the morning before yesterday. Folks, yes, jet lag is a force to be reckoned with. Uh Uh-huh, especially when you're talking an 11-hour time difference. (sighs) Still kind of recovering. Anyway, for those of you who've been to the country, you already know that it's basically a tropical paradise. There are two seasons there, hot and hotter. Mm Mm-hmm. I think I was there during the hotter season since it's late May, almost June. Well, not only is it hot, it's also humid and muggy. The Thais themselves, well, naturally, they're quite used to this. They have no problem. Me? I was sweating like a pig in Hades. I don't know how many shirts I soaked through while I was there. And you know, I'm really glad I went. There are a few things I noticed about Thailand. First and foremost, the people there are actually pretty darn nice. Make just a little effort, like learning, you know, how to say thank you in the Thai language. Man, that'll take you pretty far. Learn how to greet them in their language, you know, just like they do with each other. That also scores points. They heard Sawat D. Kraup come out of my mouth in my California accent. Well, you know, their faces lit right up. Seriously. Uh, That's how you say hello, basically. Then they heard Kap Kun Kraup. They really dug that. Um, That's how you say thank you, by the way. Respect, folks. That's all it is. Basic stuff like this matters, no matter where you go in the world. I still know how to say thank you in Turkish. And good thing, too, because we got several Turkish-owned businesses in my neck of the woods. They, like, do double takes when they hear me say, Teşekkür ederim. Faces light right up. They start treating me with all sorts of consideration, even more than they had been. And Turkish people are pretty polite to start with anyway, you know, just like the Thai people were. Lots of rumors about Bangkok, too. Most of them about, you know, the seedier parts of town. We all know what that is. Well, I didn't see that, but I'm pretty sure it exists, too, you know, since that exists in just about every other gigantic city here on planet Earth. Uh Uh-huh. Go to New York, L.A. I know something about L.A.'s. Um, Washington, D.C., heard about that too. Chicago, Madrid, Amsterdam, you name it, it's going to be there. But that's not the part of town I saw. The part I was in, that was pretty cosmopolitan, you know, same as you'd expect in any other big city. Light rails, skyscrapers, people in business suits going to and from, all that stuff. Bangkok's right on the water. Here's a good analogy of what Bangkok is like. Imagine Chicago, but hotter and in a different language. That's Bangkok. Oh, and uh, with a lot fewer overweight people, too. (laughs) The Thais seem to keep themselves in pretty good shape. Hey, Thai food, right? (laughs) I was right there, and yes, it is good. Even brought a few uh, spices back with me. And let me tell you, the Royal Palace grounds built way back in the day, some of you may have seen pictures of this. Well, I saw it up close and personal. And I have never seen anything so ornate or detailed. And they still maintain it in in tip-top shape. 
You know, basically, the Grand Palace is Thailand's version of Buckingham Palace, but way more ornate. And I mean way more ornate. It really was awe-inspiring. Now, why am I telling you all this? You know, what's, a, what's some you know, trip to Bangkok, Thailand have to do with either liberalism or guns? Here's why. Remember I said Bangkok's a lot like Chicago, but hotter? Remember that? Well, unfortunately, it resembles Chicago in another way, too. Bangkok's also a gun-free zone, just like Chicago, it turns out. It's one of the other things I noticed while I was over there in Thailand. No matter where I went in the country, the only people with guns were the police and the military. Basically, Sarah Brady's and the other aunties' dream world. I was amazed, folks, that they actually let you tour the Royal Palace grounds and let you get that physically close to the Grand Palace itself. (laughs) You even think of getting anywhere remotely that close to the White House here in the good old U.S. of A.? Just think about getting that close. The Secret Service will fill you so full of lead, Superman with his X-ray vision wouldn't be able to see you anymore. Oh, speaking of guns, the Palace Guards, they have long guns, as you would expect. And, well, fortunately, I got a pretty good look at what they were carrying. You know, I'm a gun guy. I like that sort of thing. There was an HK-33, which is the 5.56mm NATO version of the famous H&K G3. Yeah, some of the guards had those. Others were using the good old Colt M16, just like we use here in the States. Nah, I ain't stupid. I didn't get too close, naturally. Otherwise, I wouldn't be giving you this episode right now. (laughs) But I did get a good enough look. Oh, also, uh, they had a display of some cannons from way back in the day. This is what the Thai Army and Navy used uh, for, you know, defense of Bangkok from various invaders over the years. Oh, and speaking of defense, learn a little something-something about those Buddhist temples that they got over there. Uh, You see, Thailand's mostly Buddhist. They got Buddhist temples just like the Bible Belt's got churches. And they ain't kidding about their spirituality either. Oh, no. Well, those temples used to have all sorts of gold in them. But then this little country called Myanmar, also known as Burma, decided to invade them repeatedly. And what did they do? They ripped off the gold from those temples. Yep. Well, finally, the Thais got sick and tired of this, as you might expect. And the next time Myanmar came in, the Thais opened up a nice big can of whoop-ass on them. Now, Thais lost a lot of good men and women here. Yeah, oh yeah, the ladies fought their butts off too, like, you know, straight up swordsmanship and and such. Lots of dead Thai people after that. But like the old saying goes, you should have seen the other guy. The Thais put enough of a head stomping on Myanmar that the Burmese quit invading them. Gee, funny how that works, ain't it? Now this final battle is commemorated by the Thais on a pretty regular basis in a place, a city called Ayutthaya. It took me a couple of times to learn how to pronounce that, too. Ayutthaya is the name of the city. That was actually the original capital of Thailand you know, before King Rama I founded the city of Bangkok to move the capital there back in the day. Well, not only did the Thais use swords, guns, and cannons to defend themselves, they also did it on elephants. Yeah, that's right. Freaking elephants. The Thais hopped onto those elephants and stomped on some Burmese heads. And the Thais keep their young people reminded of this. Now, this is to remind them not just of their proud heritage as a people, which is 
enough reason in and of itself, but also the need to defend yourself if you're attacked. Well, gee, makes perfect sense to me. And that, folks, is why I'm telling you about my trip to Thailand. It's also why I'm kind of surprised at something. I'm surprised that the country's a gun-free zone. I mean, seriously, I didn't see a single civilian-owned gun the entire time I was there. Only the police and military. Now, here's why that's bad. I'll give you an example. Thailand's got a royal family, just like the, you know, the United Kingdom does. You know, the Thais apparently look up to the royal family in a you know, pretty similar way to how the, how the British fawn over the House of Mountbatten-Windsor. I mean, look at any time Prince William, Prince Harry, or Duchess Kate even so much as burp it makes headline news. Well, likewise in Thailand, their royals are apparently venerated in like form. It's to the point that there's actually a law saying that you can't say disparaging things about the royal family or else it's seven years in jail. You're going to the pokey if you insult the royal family. So, what's disparaging? Well, that's kind of the point that I'm making here. It can be anything that those who control the guns don't happen to like that day. It seems kind of like that, that relatively new Turkish law about insulting Turkishness. You know, whatever that's supposed to mean. Well, naturally, it means anything that those who control the guns want it to mean. And there are no guns in the hands of civilians to keep the police and military in check if the, if the uh, authorities start going overboard. I thought about that while I was there. Beautiful country, great people, and no real way to rein in a government gone wrong. Now, admittedly, to be fair, this is the case in most countries I've been fortunate enough to visit. It's true in Peru, Mexico, Red China, and that includes Hong Kong and Macau, by the way, um, Spain, Turkey, Argentina, and so on. Yeah, I've gotten around a little bit over the years. <laughs> I've been very fortunate. But seriously, all these countries are gun-free zones. I didn't hear of or see anything like, you know, the police stepping over the line while I was there. But, well, that's what I used to think of both Canada and California, too. Remember, I'm from California until they started up with those gun confiscations. At gunpoint, ironically. Would I go back to Thailand? <laughs> you bet. Sure I would. Thailand's a wonderful place to visit. And I understand that quite a few Westerners, um, that's how the Thais refer to white people, folks, Westerners. You know, quite a few Westerners live there and, you know, they're very happy. They're, they're doing great. And the people are really cool, too. I just wish they had a real world way to keep the government in check if things should really go haywire someday. You know, it's not like it hasn't happened before on our planet. And this brings to mind something else. You know, traveling really gives you a whole nother appreciation for the Constitution that we're fortunate enough to have here in this country. This here San Francisco liberal with a gun thinks about that quite a bit. Now, when we get back, we're going to tell you a little about a little uh, journalistic deception, speaking of our Constitution. Yeah, journalistic deception, to the point that I actually call it fraud, by one Ms. Katie Couric. And I can tell you about it because I was actually there. Seeing a bit.
We're back. Oh, about a year ago on January, what was it? The, the, the 12th, I think? Yeah, I think it was January 12th. Former news anchor, and I think still Yahoo news anchor, Katie Couric held what was basically a town hall meeting about gun violence. She calls, you know, she's talking about gun violence. That's one of her big sticks that she's up, up, up about. Anyway, there were about 10 of us from the Virginia Citizens Defense League, or VCDL. Now, we already knew that Katie does not like the Second Amendment from her previous uh, um, news coverage. Oh, yeah, she's been an anti for years, folks. So, naturally, we were a little skeptical, but we agreed to do it. She said she wanted to get the pro-gun side of the message. Okay, whatever this message is supposed to be. But okay, we did it. Well, today is May 27th, 2016, almost a year later. She has now come out with her uh, documentary. Yeah. Not only is it heavily, heavily biased toward the position of gun control, but it gets worse. Katie and her director got caught with some, uh, shall we say, creative editing. Deceptive editing. I'd even call it fraud, folks. It's making all the pro-Second Amendment websites. And, and, yeah, it is. It's all over them. And it's now even getting covered by some, some mainstream media outlets. Yeah, my goodness, even the Washington Post called her out on it. It was so egregious. CNN even made mention of it. What she did, folks, here's what she did. She edited a section of video so that when she asked if there were, you know, if there were no background checks, how do you prevent terrorists and felons from getting guns? It looks like we're all just sitting there dumbfounded by the question, you know, like we've got no answer for like eight or nine seconds. The way it looks, she got us good and managed to embarrass us. Listen to her doctored clip. Let me ask you another question. If there are no background checks for gun purchasers, how do you prevent felons or terrorists from purchasing a gun? Note that long silence after her question. Yeah. The video shows several of us looking around in silence. You can't see the video, so I'll tell you what's in it. Yeah, several of us are looking around in silence, even looking down as if we don't know what to say. Well, sounds pretty bad for us, doesn't it? Here's the thing. That's not what actually happened. I know because I was in there in that panel. You can even see my face if you watch the video. You know, for whatever that's worth. (laughs) Here, folks, is what actually happened. Not only did we respond to her question, we did so for a good four minutes, all the while she's trying to cut us off and tell us what to think, and she got repeatedly spanked by logic, reason, and facts. Here's the unedited audio recorded by a VCDL person, just in case she were to try a stunt like this. Go! If there are no background checks, how do you prevent... I know how you all are going to answer this, but I'm asking anyway. If there are no background checks for gun purchasers, how do you prevent felons or terrorists from walking into, say, a licensed gun dealer and purchasing a gun? Well, one, if, if you're not in jail, you should still have your basic rights, and you should go buy a gun. So uh, if you're a terrorist so or a felon? If you're, if you're a felon and you've done your time, you should have your rights. What well, the fact is we do have statutes, both at the federal and state level, 
that prohibit classes of people from being in possession of firearms. If you're under 18 in Virginia, you can't walk around with a gun. If you're an illegal immigrant, if you're uh, a convicted felon, um, if you've been adjudicated insane, uh, these things are already illegal. So what we're really asking about is a question of prior restraint. How can we prevent future crime by identifying bad guys before they do anything bad? And the simple answer is you can't. And particularly under the legal system we have in the United States, there are a lot of Supreme Court opinions that say, no, prior, prior restraint is something that the, the government does not have the authority to do. Until there is an overt act that allows us to say, that's a bad guy, then you can't punish him. Uh, I would take another um, outlook on this. First, I'll ask you what crime or what law has ever stopped a crime? Tell me one law that has ever stopped a crime from happening. Well, some would argue since the Brady Bill was enacted, you know, people who have an opposing point of view, two million guns have been kept from the hands of criminals. But what's, who's to say that that person that was denied a background check didn't go out and buy or steal a gun? Well, perhaps it made it more difficult, and who knows? That's sort of a hypothetical. Okay. Um, so, but I think so that that's that's a law that kept guns uh, from getting into the hands of wrong uh, of people who should not own guns, according to people who support the Brady Bill. If that were the case, we would have seen a significant reduction in crime with the reduction of sales of guns to people. But or what, we would have seen a, a, a smaller increase, and that, again, is hard to measure. It I is. tell people all but, the time that if you go to Prince George's County, Maryland, I mean, it must be the safest place on earth because they have tremendous gun control. But in fact, it's, it's practically it the, the murder capital of the country. Uh, it's because people who have, um, who otherwise law-abiding, self-reliant folks are prohibited from being able to defend themselves, and the people who want to kill them are not. So like Chicago. Back to the point like that Chicago. I was getting to in a roundabout way. Um, if someone wants to commit murder, and even if they are prevented from getting a gun to commit that murder with, it doesn't necessarily stop them from committing murder. And the murder is already against the law. The tool that they use may change. But if they are bound and determined to break a law, commit murder, commit robbery, break into somebody's house, whatever it is that they're going to do, then the law is not stopping them. It is just giving an avenue to punish them if and when they are caught. Is it making it, though, potentially more difficult to carry out a crime if it is harder? to obtain a, a gun. I don't think it is harder to obtain a gun. Well, let's say they aren't able to buy a gun legally because of a background check, and they have to go somewhere else, or they have to find someone to sell them a gun. Theoretically, is that making it perhaps harder for that person to go and kill someone they're angry at? Could they have changed their mind in the interim? I'm just asking. I do not think that it would make a difference in the person wanting to commit. There it is. Like the rap song said, oop, there it is. Huh. Well, now you can see that not only did she uh, 
creatively edit our response. She even creatively edited her own doggone question. This was clearly done to try to make the pro-Second Amendment side look bad, and it didn't happen at all the way she depicted it. And the vast majority of the panel discussion ended up on the cutting room floor. Apparently, actual facts aren't useful to Katie Couric when she's trying to spew propaganda for her her personal political agenda. (laughs) Some journalist, eh? And this is what I had to come home to when I got back from Thailand. Now, here's a first-hand account. Short, but pretty representative of what went on, what actually went on during that panel discussion. Katie led with all sorts of political statements masquerading as questions. I call that the the Jeopardy strategy. You know, make political statements in the form of questions. She was obviously looking for, you know, any little thing she could find to try to trip us up. She got nothing. Nothing, folks. Not a zip. Zero. Matter of fact, early on in the panel discussion, the story of my dad defending himself came out. Yeah, I told that story. Katie, with her little blondie white self, had no way to counter the fact that my dad had every right in the world to defend himself from a violent attack from a bunch of racists. From that point forward, she tried to avoid me. I guess she realized that I'm kind of media savvy too, and I'm strong enough of a personality to be able to destroy her attacks on the Second Amendment. She didn't like that. Aww. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure she hated my guts because her demeanor toward me from that point on pretty much reflected that. And just in case you're wondering, no, I didn't let her avoid me. Uh-uh. <laughs> oh, and neither did another fella. Uh, this guy's named Daniel Hawes. He's an attorney. He also got on her butt. He took her apart from a legal and constitutional perspective. I mean, this guy was citing Supreme Court rulings, statutes, you name it. She tried stating, in the form of a question, of course, how the Brady Law has made it more difficult for terrorists and felons to get guns. You know, they always pull that, oh, terrorists and felons, they always pull the terrorist word. And that background checks have reduced the the amount of gun violence. Well, Attorney Daniel Hawes referred to something called prior restraint. And really smacked down Katie's little pseudo-argument for universal background checks, which is where she was going with this. Daniel repeatedly knocked down her strawman arguments. And since he's both an older fellow and a skilled attorney, she knew not to try to somehow avoid him. But she didn't like it. I mean, you should have seen the look on her face. Oh, and she also had the tendency to cut off people mid-sentence who said something that she didn't like. Cut them right off and started talking right over them. Now... Most of the VCDL members there had never been interviewed by a practiced activist and media person like Katie, and they were thus trying to be polite to her. This is a point worth emphasizing, folks. The VCDL members were polite to her, but she was rude to us. Fortunately, Miss BHC, my camera lady, who is also media savvy, had tipped me off to Katie's tendency to do this to people. So, you know, first time she tried that on me, I just projected my voice more and kept right on going with the point I was making. (laughs) Apparently, she didn't like that. Seriously, she looked like she just sucked on a lemon after I shut down her rudeness to me. Daniel did likewise, and she figured out pretty quickly that since he was highly respected by us in the group, that she better not try that on him anymore. Oh, one other little, oh heck, it's pretty major, tidbit. You've got to hear this. Another member of the panel, 
A professional security guard, who also happens to be a black man, put the following question to little Miss Couric. If you needed your life protected, ma'am, would you rather have an unarmed security guard or would you rather have someone with a gun such as myself guarding your life? Remember that eight-second or so pause that Katie doctored into her footage? Well, when he asked her that question, there really was about an eight-second or so pause. <laughs> yeah, eight seconds or so, the whole room was quiet, looking at Katie, right at her. Oh, once again, she had that look like she'd just sucked on a lemon. And she knew she couldn't squirm out of that one, not in this crowd anyway. So she finally admitted that she would prefer the armed security. Yeah, the guy with the gun. That's right. We actually got Katie Couric to admit that she herself would prefer armed security, i.e. a good guy with a gun, when it's her behind at stake. You heard that correctly. I was there, and I heard her say it. Well, naturally, she tried to qualify the daylights out of that admission. You know, stuff like, Provided it were someone like you who's highly trained, certified, and highly experienced, you know, all that stuff, then, then, yes, I would prefer the gun protecting my life. Yeah, it was something like that. Something to that effect. Just like an auntie, huh? Guns for her, but not for, say, my sisters. See, this is what the aunties are like when they have no argument. And, uh, you know, they, they, they interrupt people. They get rude. And uh, even when you corner them, normally they try to, you know, weasel out of it. But and the only reason she didn't is because she knew she was busted. She was caught. She knew, she, she knew we had her cornered. That's what they're like when they have no argument. The truth comes out. And when I went to talk with her after the panel was finished, after the discussion was finished, oh man, she could barely restrain her disdain and disgust at me for being willing to, for having the audacity to challenge her positions during the discussion. Katie Couric is a hypocrite, folks. We now also know that she's a deceptive, scheming hypocrite, so much so that even her buddy pals at the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, and NPR called her out on it. Yeah, you heard that right. Even the activists Huffington Post and NPR, both of which, as we know, are very much pro-gun control, have turned their backs on her. Now, that's when you know you done messed up. There's a word for what she did. It's called lying. And she lied on not just me, but that entire panel with her utter and complete misrepresentation of what really happened during that panel discussion. And since I'm one of the people directly affected by it, I have no problem calling her out on it here or anywhere else. We'll be back. We have returned. <laughs> Seemed appropriate to 
It'll come on in that way using um, MacArthur's uh, version of MacArthur's statement, given what we're about to talk about next. Well, recently I learned about the M1 Garand uh, Sniper Editions. Yeah, there was actually a version of the M1 Garand that got called a Sniper Edition. Well, what is this? Well, <laughs> basically, it's, it's just a plain old vanilla M1 Garand with a scope mount. Yeah, that's it. Doesn't shoot any better. Doesn't give you any tighter groups than any other run-of-the-mill M1 Garand. Nope. So why did they make it? Because telescopic sights, also known as scopes, do help you shoot better, regardless of the type of rifle. This is especially true when you start shooting at longer distances. That was the idea here. Since we already had a good quality, semi-automatic, general-issue infantry rifle, that would be the M1 Garand, of course, they figured over the, at the Springfield Armory, well, let's try making it easier to hit targets with this general-issue infantry rifle. Now, we already had a sniper rifle, the M1903 Springfield, which is a bolt action. And as plenty of Axis Power soldiers found out in the worst way, the M1903 Springfield sniper rifle was pretty darn effective. Well, why not try to make things even tougher on the enemy, right? This was World War II, and plenty of our boys were getting killed on foreign battlefields defending liberty and freedom. So, here's what they did. Normally, when you put a scope on a rifle, you put it right on top. This is so your barrel and your scope are aligned with each other, you know, side to side. It's important to do this because if you don't, say your scope's off to the left, you get something that we call parallax error. Here's the really short version of what that does. Basically, you have to set up your scope and your barrel so that they align at exactly one point downrange. We'll use, I don't know, 200 yards as an example. So you're going to nail bullseyes at that one point, in this case, 200 yards. But only at that point. Before then, you're going to be a little off. And when you start getting, you know, after that, say, five or 600 yards, you're going to be way off. Result, you don't hit bullseyes. Your bullet strays off to the right and keeps going more and more off to the right as you get farther. At 1,000 yards, you ain't anywhere near your target. Now, for those of you who've taken math, and specifically geometry, if you're thinking that this sounds like a triangulation error, then you're right. It's the same problem we deal with when we're talking about the real North Pole and the magnetic North Pole when you're using a compass. And that's why we mount scopes right in line with the barrel, so we, so, you know, we avoid that little problem. Well, unfortunately, we can't do that with the M1 Garand. How comes? Well, it's because the M1 Garand ejects its empty brass cases right where the scope needs to be. Yep, that brass gets thrown right out the top, just like the old Winchester lever guns. Now, on a Winchester lever gun, well, say the old, the, you know, the good old 30-30. Uh, your maximum deer hunting range was maybe 200 yards, more commonly 100 to 150. So this parallax error wasn't a big deal. I mean, yeah, it was there, but it wasn't really a big deal. Not so when you start talking about the 30-06. Things change. The effective range of the 30-06 cartridge has been demonstrated to be nearly three-quarters of a mile with the proper loading. That's close to 1,300 yards, folks. Ten times the typical hunting distance with the 30-30. That's far. Well, guess what the M1 Garand shoots? Right, the 30-06. And yes, it is very possible to run those loads in the M1 Garand without damaging the operating system or the op rod. 
Just pick up one of those adjustable gas plugs and you're done. Those even let you run that, that new Superformance 30-06 that Hornady's got nowadays. Now, that's some fast ammo. Now, that's great, but now we've got a problem. You want to take out enemy soldiers at 1,000 yards, which is well within the 30-06's capabilities? Well, you can't be having that parallax error getting in your way then, folks, and that's true even at 500 yards. Remember that 500 to 1,000 yard shots were actually expected back in the World War II days. Yes, they were, and definitely so if you were a specially trained marksman. So we had a problem for this new sniper rifle. The only, the only way to mount a scope was off to the side, specifically to the left because most people are right-handed. But the parallax error was going to cause our designated marksman fits. There is a way I can think of to take care of this issue, and it would do a good job. The problem with it is that you'd always be one inch to the left when you hit your targets. Well, if I'm a designated marksman or a sniper, I'm probably not going to worry too much about being an inch off to the left as long as I can actually hit the enemy soldier. But it doesn't look that great when you go to the range and try to you know, shoot out the center bullseye at 100 yards. <laughs> no bragging rights, see? And I believe that's what they actually did with uh, battle, actual go-into-battle rifles. I think they did call that one-inch difference okay as long as you can hit the enemy soldier. That would make sense in an actual battle situation. But it's also probably why the M1903 Springfield bolt-action sniper rifle kept getting used in this role. Let's face it, it worked very well, and it made the shooter's job easier because you didn't have to worry about parallax. Same for the Winchester Model 70 and the Remington 700 during Vietnam. Two other excellent bolt-action rifles, by the way. That said, the M1 Garand sniper rifle did get used throughout the Korean War, and at the beginning of Vietnam. It's said that the rifle did a pretty good job. Now, there are two types of M1 Garand Sniper Edition rifle. The first is the M1C, which required milling the receiver. Yeah, didn't work out so, so well in the real world, so they tried a different system, the M1D. John C. Garand himself came up with the M1D's method of mounting the scope. It's simple, elegant, and it works well. It's essentially a sleeve that fits around an M1 Garand's barrel. You gotta slightly modify the barrel in just a bit, but you do that and then just press the sleeve right on there. That sleeve holds the scope mount and yep, it's offset to the left by about an inch. The scope itself uses a 7 eighths of an inch main tube, just an eighth of an inch smaller than most standard scopes use today. I'm, I'm not sure why they didn't just go one inch. Well, it seems like that would have been easier, but that's what they did, so that's what we deal with. The scope itself is 2.5 power, 2.5 power, so Shots at 1,000 yards, eh, they're going to be a little bit of a challenge. But like with anything else, if you're a, a really good shot, you can do it. But you've got to be really good. I'd say 500 to 600 yards seems like a more reasonable maximum distance with that scope. Now think about this. Wouldn't it be great to stick, say, a, a modern Leupold or Redfield scope on one of these rifles and see what it can do? <laughs> see what it can really do when you stretch it out there? I'll bet they'd be pretty darn effective rifles. Well, guess what? We're basically doing that now, today, with the M14 designated marksmanship rifle. Yeah, this is the one they use over in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that one's quote-unquote only in 7.62 NATO, also known as 308 Winchester. Huh. Well, if that thing is as effective as it has been, then imagine what a full-power semi-automatic 30-06 could do in the same role. Now, remember when I said the M1Cs didn't work out quite so well? That's why not a whole lot of them were made. 
there were more M1Ds for that exact reason. That was the improved system. So, how many M1Ds? Well, just over 21,000 from what I can figure out. Just over 21,000 of those were made, real ones. Now, I've shot one of these M1D Sniper Edition rifles. You want an old classic scoped rifle? This is definitely one of them. Shoots just like any other M1 Garand. It's old, it's heavy, the as-issued scopes will be considered way outdated by today's standards. And doggone it, it's damn cool. I'm serious, folks. This thing is so cool. Shooting one of these takes you back to the old days. You know, my dad's generation, the 1950s. Back when you had cars like the 57 Chevy and the, the, the Edsel. Okay, not so cool there. But you had the high school girls on the roller skates serving hamburgers and malted milkshakes at the soda fountain like my mom used to do. Yeah, she did that. Uh, this is what those guys fought with. This is one of the rifles that they used you know, to keep South Korea free today. And perhaps someday maybe Korea will reunify just like Germany did and all Koreans will be free people again. This is one of those rifles. You think about that sort of thing when you're firing this kind of rifle. Oh, and here's the best part. I didn't just tell you all this to tease you. We know that regular M1 Garands are available through the Civilian Marksmanship Program. Well, guess what? <laughs> the CMP's got some of the Sniper Edition ones, too. Yep, these things are actually available for us to buy, and the M1Ds are actually reasonably affordable. Okay, Cowboy T, that sounds pretty cool. Did you actually get one? <laughs> I was already there at the CMP store. They were sitting there on the rack. What do you think? <laughs> to hold this rifle, which I'm doing right now, is to hold a symbol of liberty. That's true holding any U.S. military surplus rifle, especially something like an M1 Garand of any sort, or an M1903 Springfield. It's also true when you're holding a Finnish Mosnagat, given that nation's history of fighting for its freedom, even against Stalin's Red Army hordes. You know, it's even true when you're holding a Russian or Soviet Mosnagat. Just think of the Battle of Stalingrad. Yeah, I saw enemy at the gates, and Vasily was the man. And I feel that yet again, as I'm holding this M1D Grand Sniper Edition rifle in my hands. That is the bolt being racked and slamming forward and the trigger being pulled, folks. That's the sound of liberty. I can only imagine what Katie Kirk and her director, Stephanie Soaktig, must think of this rifle. This rifle that I'm holding. Folks like them need to remember something. Rifles like this are why they can spew their propaganda in the first place, according to the First Amendment. Ironically, folks, it's because of people like you and me, gun owners, that people like Katie and Stephanie can exist at all. Remember, the key to freedom is the ability to defend yourself. And if you don't have the tools to do that, then you're at the mercy of those who would do you harm. And... As Katie herself admitted when we asked her about what she would want protecting her own life, the tools for that are guns. This is Cowboy T. We'll see you next time, folks. Until then, safe shooting. Practice your marksmanship. 
think about the liberties we have here in this country because they are precious. And thanks for listening.